guys, welcome back and thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Sherry, and you are listening to From the Dark Side Podcast. Do you guys want to know why I'm so excited? This case that we're going to talk about today was solved by my favorite detective ever, Joe Kenda. If you're not familiar with Joe Kenda, he is a retired former detective with the Colorado Police Department. He is 76 years old today, and he has been married to his wife since 1967. I follow them on social media, and they are just adorable. Now, Joe Kenda had 387 homicide cases during his career. He solved 356 of them. If I was murdered, I would want Joe Kenda assigned to the case. He is the best of the best. He's like the Tom Brady of homicide detective work. He has seen everything that humans are capable of. I can't imagine how many grisly crime scenes he's walked into. He even discussed that his work has given him forms of PTSD. He is retired now and works on the popular television show Homicide Hunter on the Investigation Discovery Channel. Homicide Hunter is a show that showcases some of Joe Kenda's cases that he solved. He was contacted by some producers who said they wanted to have him talk about his cases. It ended up going for nine seasons. The one we're going to talk about today was featured on the show. There are 144 of Joe Kenda's cases featured on the show over a span of almost 10 years. He also has the American Detective Show and a brand new show called The Man With No Face. It's about a murder that took him 30 years to solve. It was one of his toughest cases. Anyway, I'm a huge fan of Joe Kenda, and I admire his work. He can literally look at you and know if you're lying. I could do an entire series of podcasts just of Joe Kenda cases. He has a 92% success rate when it comes to catching killers. I think you'll find yourself a fan of him as well if you already aren't. So here we go. My sources are listed in the description area. All suspects are innocent until proven guilty, and this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. This is episode 67, The Murder of Diane Hood. This story takes place in 1990. Saddam Hussein ordered Iraq to invade Kuwait, which activated Operation Desert Storm. A complete skeleton of a Tyrannosaurus Rex was found by archaeologists in South Dakota. She was given the name Sue. Nelson Mandela was released from prison. The average income was $28,000 per year. The Leaning Tower of Pisa was closed due to safety concerns of it falling over and reopened 11 years later in 2001. The most popular movies were Ghost, Pretty Woman, Home Alone, Edward Scissorhands, and Dances with Wolves. And lastly, the top song of 1990 was Hold On by Wilson Phillips. We're going to talk today about a 32-year-old woman named Diane Hood. Her husband's name is Brian Hood. They live in Colorado and have three young children. Brian works as an insurance salesman and Diane is a stay-at-home mom. They had met in college. Brian used to play on the football team and Diane was a cheerleader. They are a religious family, often attending church. 
Diane is a wonderful woman and everybody just loves her. Same goes for Brian. Diane spends her days taking care of their three kids, getting them ready for school, packing lunches, cleaning the house, lots of laundry, running errands. Brian comes home at night and they seem like an all-American family and they have no real enemies or any drama. Now, the Hood family had recently had some devastating news though. Diane was diagnosed with lupus. Lupus is an inflammatory disease caused when the immune system attacks its own tissues. The symptoms include fatigue, joint pain, rashes, and fever. There is no cure, but treatment can help with the symptoms and the flare-ups. According to the lupus.org website, 80 to 90% of people with lupus can expect to live a normal lifespan. So Diane is still able to function, but she has these flare-ups, she's tired, she gets rashes, but she's still able to continue her role as a mom and a wife. I can't imagine taking care of three young kids while having fatigue symptoms, but she did it. Her youngest was only 18 months old. So back in 1990, we didn't have all these online support groups for this type of thing. I looked and today there are multiple lupus Facebook support groups ranging from 10,000 to 33,000 members. That's a whole lot of support and people to talk to with the condition. But back in 1990, if you wanted to meet other people with lupus, you had to attend these in-person support groups, which were much smaller, maybe 10 people tops. You'd meet for an hour each week and be there for support. There is a support group for lots of different ailments, and I'm positive these kind of in-person support groups are still going on today, but online support seems to be more popular. Diane found herself attending these sessions with other women who were suffering from lupus. I don't know if these were weekly meetings or monthly meetings, but they took place in the evening, which was great because Brian was home from work and could watch the kids while Diane went to the meeting. The group's leader said Diane was great and seemed to be improving a lot, and she was very talkative during the meetings and an inspiration for the others, and she was in remission. On the night of September 12, 1990, Diane attends the lupus support meeting at the Otis Park Community Center in Colorado Springs. After the meeting, her and one of the other ladies named Karen walk out together. They're laughing and talking and saying their goodbyes when they hear footsteps approaching. It's dark, but they see someone standing right next to them wearing dark clothing and a mask and holding a gun. He grabs Diane's purse and she starts to run, but she is shot in the shoulder. This instantly makes her fall down in the parking lot. The assailant then stands over her and shoots her in the chest before taking off with her purse. Now, Karen, who had been walking with Diane, sees all of this happen and runs back inside the building and screams to everyone that Diane was shot. Everyone's like, what the hell? One of the ladies is a registered nurse and comes outside to the parking lot where Diane is laying there. There is so much blood and she's losing more blood very quickly. She begins chest compressions. Diane is still gasping for breath, but barely hanging on. The ambulance arrives and the EMTs take over, but Diane would die within minutes. She was 32 and left behind a husband and three small children. The police get there and Lieutenant Kenda is going to be tasked with solving what happened here. He sees a ton of blood in the parking lot and is kind of walking around looking for shell casings and other things. All signs point to this being a robbery that just went wrong. The first thing he wants to do is interview Karen, since she was the one that was walking with Diane. 
She said the meeting ended, they came outside and they're walking together to their cars and heard footsteps approaching them. Karen tells him the man appeared to be smaller in nature, around five foot six to five foot nine. He was wearing dark clothing, but she could tell they were camouflage army fatigues. She said he was wearing a ski mask. Diane tossed her purse to the man and started to run when she was shot in the shoulder. She falls down, the man stands over her and shoots her in the chest. He then takes off running with Diane's purse. Lieutenant Kenda has very little to go on here. You've got no description of what the shooter looks like since he was completely covered. All we know is he is around five foot six to five foot nine. He doesn't even know if he's black or white or anything. This is gonna be extremely tough to solve. A canine is brought out to the scene and this canine is gonna trace the scent of the shooter. The canine takes off and starts down the street. It eventually ends up at a residential house. It goes around to the side of the house, walks over to an outdoor trash can and sits down next to it. This shows them that the canine is done tracking. So they open the trash can and inside were dark army pants and olive drab jacket along with Diane's purse. Her credit cards and cash were not in the purse. I have said this before, but I'll say it again. I think these tracking dogs are just so amazing how they could just, you know, find this so quickly. <laughs> And just to cut to the chase, the homeowner was not involved in this. The killer just happened to find a trash can outside to get rid of the evidence, and this house had a convenient trash can outside. So you guys know what happens next. Lieutenant Kendo wants to speak with Diane's husband, and this is standard procedure whenever someone is murdered. The spouse has to be interviewed. Brian has an alibi, though. He was home watching his three kids. As well, Brian didn't fit the physical description of the shooter. Brian was six foot three and in really good physical shape. Again, a former college football player. The shooter was at least six inches shorter. Brian has to sit down with the kids and explain what happened to their mom. The whole community is supportive of what's left of this family. Their church members are bringing meals and offering to take turns watching the kids while Brian handles the death of his wife. Lieutenant Kenda talks to some folks in the area. A few of them mentioned there was this guy who is local and is known to be an outcast and dangerous. His name is Dave Burns, and local people refer to him as Homicidal Dave. They say the guy is nuts. He walks down the street and just yells out obscenities. He barks at people. He is also known to wear army clothes as he is a veteran of the first Gulf War but Homicidal Dave has an alibi for his whereabouts that night. He was at a bar shooting pool and several people vouched that he was in fact there. Lieutenant Kenda is running out of leads. He's got no description of the shooter except that he is shorter in height than the average man, nothing else. At this point in the investigation, he's forced to look at Diane herself for any clues. Even though this appeared to be a random robbery, he doesn't have anything else to go on. A check into Diane's life doesn't set off any red flags. She appears to be just a devoted mom and wife. She spends her days taking care of the kids and her husband when he comes home. She attends lupus support groups and playdates at the park with other moms. She attends church. She's not some secret drug dealer or has this whole other life or anything like that. Her husband, Brian, checks out as well. His co-workers at the insurance company he works for say he's a great guy and there's no red flags there. 
Lieutenant Kenda learns from talking to Brian that he goes to the gym a few times a week. So he wants to go down and speak to some of the folks at the gym just to get more of an idea of him. He wants to talk to some of the ladies that work there, see if he's, you know, secretly some creepy guy who hits on them or whatever. They tell him Brian is a regular there and he has a friend that he works out with a good bit. The friend is a woman by the name of Jennifer Rialli. Jennifer works at a local florist. These ladies say that they spent a good time, bit of time together working out. Much like Brian, Jennifer is married and has two children. Lieutenant Kenda speaks to the owner of the flower shop that Jennifer works at. He tells him Jennifer's a nice lady, a good mom, and the owner says he and Jennifer's husband, whose name is Ben, are friends. See, they both have antique gun collections and often talked about them together. Ben is an army captain and also a criminal investigator at Fort Carson. This guy is no joke. He's an expert in killing and criminal investigations. But Lieutenant Kenda is also an expert, so this is going to be interesting when they meet. Was it possible that Brian was having an affair with Jennifer Rialli and her husband Ben retaliated? This would be strange because in cases like this, the scorned lover usually would go after the person involved, not the innocent person. Most times they aren't going to kill the spouse of the other party. They're going to kill that person instead. But at this point, we don't know if Brian and Jennifer are even having an affair, but they do spend a lot of time together. As well, Ben collects antique guns and wears army clothes. A gun and army clothes were involved in Diane's murder. An autopsy is performed and two bullets are recovered. They are sent to a ballistics expert, and this guy is good, like one of the best in the country. Lieutenant Kenda gets a call from him, and he tells him, well, today is your lucky day. Kenda says, well, what do you have for me? He says, well, these bullets come from an extremely rare antique gun, an 1872 Colt 45 Peacemaker. This is a collector's piece, one that is worth a lot of money a rare, valuable gun. This is a cowboy's type of gun that was used in the old Wild West, and this is a huge help. Lieutenant Kenda surprises Ben at work, and Ben appears to be confused as hell. He's also around five foot nine. He tells him he heard he was an antique gun collector and wondered if he could talk to him about it. Ben says yes, he does own a 1872 Colt Peacemaker. It was a gift from his grandfather many years ago, and Lieutenant Kenda says he has reason to believe it may have been involved in a shooting. He wants to look at the gun so it can be analyzed for fingerprints. Ben brings them the gun and it reeks of cleaning fluid and they aren't able to recover any fingerprints from it. He said a few weeks ago, Jennifer said she wanted to go target practicing and he took her out and she used that exact gun, his 1872 Peacemaker, to practice. Lieutenant Kenda asked Ben to come down to the station where they can finish interviewing him. They want to get him on their turf, not his. Being out of his office and in the police station would make him a little less comfortable. So he goes to the Colorado Springs Police Department. There, Lieutenant Kenda lays out the army jacket and pants that were found in the trash can. He asks him if they belong to him. Ben says, no, they're not his. Lieutenant Kenda says, Ben, you're not even looking at them look at them, but he won't look at them. 
Lieutenant Kenda says, I'll tell you what's going to happen now. At a minimum, I'm going to call your military commander and say you're possibly involved in a murder and your entire career as an investigator is ruined in the next hour, or I'm going to arrest you for murder. Ben admits the clothes do look like his. At this point, they have knowledge that the ballistics from the bullets are a 90% match to Ben's gun. They also have a hair that was found on the clothing, which winds up matching the Rioli's family dog. Lieutenant Kenda feels something is off with Ben. For being this high intelligence officer, he appears confused and bewildered this whole time. Kenda knows something isn't right here. He asked Ben when the last time he saw those army clothes was. He said they were in his closet, but he hasn't lived at his house for three weeks because he and his wife, Jennifer, had just separated. Ben had been living on post. He said Jennifer asked him for the gun so she could keep it for protection since he wasn't living there anymore. But earlier that day, she brought it back to him, and it had been cleaned. Suddenly, Kenda realizes maybe Ben isn't the person of interest here in Diane's murder. Maybe it's his wife, Jennifer. Kenda also begins to remember a detail from his first interview with Karen, who was there when Diane was killed. This detail didn't seem important at the time, but now it does. You guys have seen movies when a woman gets her purse snatched. The robber usually grabs it, puts it under their armpit, and runs off really fast. This robber put the strap over their shoulder, like a woman carrying a purse would do, and then took off with the purse over their shoulder. The gears are turning, and Lieutenant Kenda knows he needs to interview Jennifer. Ben is cleared as a suspect and was also found to have an alibi the night of Diane's murder. Jennifer Rialli is 28 years old. She has two children, recently separated from her husband, Ben. She is a college graduate who works in a flower shop and is regarded by others as a great person. She doesn't really fit the profile of someone who is robbing and shooting people. Lieutenant Kenda gets her to the station where he is going to press her for answers. She pulls the, do you know who my husband is card. Kenda's like, yeah, I've been talking to him for several hours. He's a highly decorated criminal intelligence officer. Ben is still at the station and sits next to Jennifer during her interrogation, and he's having a tough time believing his wife is capable of doing this. First, he learns she was having an affair, and then she le- he learns that she may be guilty of murder. Kenda presses Jennifer for answers. He tells her, this is Ben's clothing. This is Ben's gun. She says the gun must have been stolen. But Kenda tells her killers don't usually return the gun when they're finished. She is denying everything, and Kenda puts her into a corner with his questions. And Ben tells him, you can't do this. He starts screaming at the police and really acting out. Kenda calms him down and tells him, Ben, this doesn't have anything to do with you. You need to distance yourself from this. You're an innocent person in all of this, which Ben understands. Finally, Jennifer admits that she was the one who killed Diane Hood. She shot her and stole her purse to make it look like a robbery. Kenda got his confession. But Jennifer says this wasn't her idea. She says this whole thing was Brian's idea. She says she has been having an affair with him for the last eight months. They had sex a handful of times. It was mostly an an emotional affair, she called it. But Brian said that Diane had a $100,000 life insurance policy. But if she died under other circumstances, such as a shooting or a car accident, the life insurance policy would double. 
He tells Jennifer that Diana's gonna die anyway of lupus. If only we had a way to get rid of Diane now, we could have twice the money and we wouldn't have to wait around for the lupus to take her. God, that sounds awful. He made it seem like having her killed would be a merciful thing to do. Brian tells Jennifer, look, you already committed the sin of adultery. Murder is classified as the same kind of sin. As long as you repent, all will be forgiven in the eyes of the Lord. He used Bible verses to back himself up. He also said that the police were stupid and wouldn't be able to figure out that she was involved because they will think this is a robbery. Brian spent three months trying to convince Jennifer to kill his wife. Some of Brian's friends were interviewed and they said that they had heard him say things like, it would be so much easier if Diane just died now. They didn't come forward because they were afraid of Brian. He already killed his wife, he may kill them too. Just to skip ahead for a moment regarding her lupus condition, Diane's family doctor would end up testifying. He said that he sat down with Brian and Diane when he first gave her the lupus diagnosis. He explained that her condition was the mildest form of lupus. It wasn't life-threatening. So it's obvious Brian exaggerated her condition to Jennifer so she would feel better about killing Diane and more easily convinced. He used his wife's mild form of lupus to justify murder. Jennifer is arrested and charged with first-degree murder. Brian is still out there and they go to pick him up. He is charged with conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, solicitation to commit first-degree murder, and first-degree murder. Meanwhile, you've got Diane's three young children and Jennifer's two young children. Two families are now destroyed due to the selfish actions of Brian and Jennifer. Diane's kids went to live with their grandparents, and I assume Jennifer's kids stayed with their dad, Ben. On December 23, 1991, just two days before Christmas, Brian was found guilty of two counts of criminal solicitation and one count of conspiracy to murder. He was found not guilty of first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 37 years in prison. Jennifer pled insanity. Her case was that she was brainwashed by Brian. She said he groomed her, and he even told her to make sure she pulled the trigger twice to make sure Diane was dead. The jury didn't buy it, though. She was found guilty of first-degree murder and conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. She was sentenced to life in prison. Brian served 27 years out of 37, and then he was granted parole in March of 2019. Brian is free today. Jennifer was quoted as being a model prisoner and even released two gospel albums while behind bars. One was called Love Me In, and the other was called Prisoner of Love. In December of 2017, Jennifer was granted parole. She was ordered to have no contact with Diane's family and also to pay $39,000 to them in restitution. Diane's son, Jared, who is now in his 40s, says he forgives Jennifer and even supported the board's decision to release her on parole. He was only nine years old when his mom was murdered. He said from what he remembers of his mom, she taught me to be a good sport and to walk in the fruit of the spirit. I will honor her legacy by continuing in the way of Christ. I believe this is what she would have wanted. Jennifer was released from prison in December 2017, and in a weird turn of events, Jennifer died three months later of pancreatic cancer. Lieutenant Kenda says, what does a murderer look like? As it turns out, they look like the cute mom next door. Rest in peace to Diane, who, if alive today, would be 65 years old.
I'll see you all again soon. Take care and much love to you all.